change. It's a commonly used word in society and often describes periods of transition, uncertainty, prosperity, uncomfortability, and opportunity. It's amazing that this one word can represent so many things that often contradict each other. Changes bring out the good and evil within us, and whether those changes are minimal or massive, how we react to change ultimately defines who we are. Introducing the focus of our show today was our beloved Mr. Massive. Yes, everyone. The focus of today's episode has changed. With the world changing so much, each and every one of us changes. For the better or for worse. And yes, that even applies to sports. We're going to have a lot of fun today with this episode. So bring your hype. And grab your balls. Get ready for Eat My Sports. The NFL has become the new America's pastime. Think about it. The league is a master of presentation. It's perfected televising. It's perfected advertising its product. It sells oodles of merchandise. The NFL is more scrutinized than any other major sport and has been so since the dawn of the Super Bowl era. And it's for good reason. Virtually everyone knows the NFL and its place within American culture. And because of this larger-than-life status, everything that's happened within its confines and everything it does is controversial. One aspect we'd like to immediately acknowledge is the Rooney the Rooney Rule requires teams to interview at least one non-white candidate for head coaching and senior football ops positions. Recently, the NFL has attempted to incentivize the hiring of non-whites, so they suggested improving draft picks for those that do so. It came from a good place, but it was shot down because it's a delicate subject, and ultimately it may have crossed a fine line. Just as we've mentioned, and the NFL is no exception, not every change that they want to make, or does make, is necessarily best for the NFL. So our focus is to examine some of the on-field rules, those that are controversial, and that we ultimately do think need that change. And if there's anything that we've missed, or anything you'd like to add, feel free to let us know. You can reach out to us on our email, which is eatmysports2020 at gmail.com, or feel free to send us a voice message on Anchor. Mr. Massive, take it away! Thank you, Foz. And let's highlight one of the biggest changes in the NFL for the longest time now. It's no secret that for the past 20 years, the NFL's on-field focus has been to implement more offense. The NFL is now an offensive-driven league. 
And that may seem normal to us here in 2020, but for those of us who eat their sports using a pair of dentures, they know of a more defensive-heavy NFL. <laughs> My leg! <laughs> I think that's the wrong <laughs> one, but... <laughs> yeah, that's Joe Theismann. That was last episode. Yeah. The NFL has naturally gravitated towards heavy passing offenses through the use of spread offense, not only to try and win games, but to also to gain more fan interest. Based on attempts per game, 43 of the 50 most passed-heavy offenses played after 2000. And again, think about it. The famed passing record held by Dan Marino at 48 touchdowns was broken three times in the last 15 years by Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, and Patrick Mahomes in his rookie season through 50 touchdowns. It's not a coincidence. Oh, four times. Thank you. My math is bad. But <laughs> <laughs> Peyton Manning did it twice, by the way. Well, there you go. But keep in mind, whatever-changing offenses... I like the natural part of it. We can always edit out certain parts like this right here. But but keep in mind, with offenses changing, defenses began adapting and evolving faster than offenses could keep up with. Therefore, the NFL felt the need to augment offensive output by forcing defenses to play differently. And we see it all the time. You can't put your hands on the receiver outside five yards. There's no force-out rule. There's definitely an offensive initiative. The NFL artificially created a much larger scoring environment through the use of defensive penalties, such as pass interference or illegal contact, because ultimately, more points equals more viewers. Think about it. When was the last time you watched an NFL game and there weren't constant defensive pass interference calls? Now, this has accomplished the goal that they set out for, score more points. But here's the thing. It doesn't actually make the game of football better. In fact, all it's done is make it slower because of all the flags. As a dedicated football fan, it ultimately makes the game more of a chore to watch. Now think about this for a second. How many times have you recently watched a team drive down the field, get stopped on third down, but the drive continues anyway due to a stupid defensive penalty? No one really knows why it was even called. But here's the thing. We go to commercial. We forget about it. We come back, they resolve the issue, continues, the, the, then they get stopped again on third down, another penalty happens, the process repeats all over again, extending the drive further. Finally, the offense will score a touchdown, and it has to be reviewed because, as we know, every scoring play must be reviewed, followed by a commercial. But that's exciting. Definitely, sure. <laughs> Woo, go offense. Another commercial, only to go to a kickoff, which most of the time is a touchback. And then, finally, another commercial. You know, if I didn't know any better, I would just watch, uh, what do they call it, HGTV all day, where they try to sell you all these random things yes. at a huge discount. If I wanted to watch a really long commercial, I'd go watch that. This is supposed to be a sport. At least we get our beer commercials. Hey, at least we know Bud Light is the official sponsor of the NFL. And that Coors Light is as cold as the Rockies. You know it's bad when I'm more familiar with the sponsorships of the NFL rather than the rules of the game I'm supposed to be watching. So here's a solution. Combine illegal contact, defensive holding, and pass interference under one penalty. Think about it. It's all the same thing. Don't touch the wide receiver when you're not supposed to. There's never an illegal contact on a running play. It's only passing plays. You have to let the players play. Too often, defenses are handicapped because the rules are vague. They can't figure out contact rules 
in a contact sport. Let me stop you right there, guy. Hold on a second. Let me ask you this now, all right? I'm going to, in the great words of the Mr. Massive, think about it. Oh, God. Everything you just said makes perfect sense. Thank you. Right? And while the rules do suck ass, okay, and they do, what if the bigger issue is the referees? It's been an issue ever since the infamous replacement ref season. Wait, do you are you referring to the season in which the NFL hired Lingerie Football League? Yes, Lingerie Football League, for those who have never heard about it, referees to govern the sanctity of America's pastime. Is that what you're telling me right now? Yeah. Who have you talked to? That's like, yeah, I really think the rest do a great job. <laughs> Nobody. Nobody. Everybody craps all over the refs. And with conviction. Okay, it's not just one of those things where you see the players screaming at the refs for no reason. It's blatant. You just talked about it. Everyone that watches sports, I get, will obviously ride on the refs no matter what. They have a difficult job. But this has gone way out of control. Look at how many times the Packers lost the past couple seasons, especially in 2018, because Clay Matthews got called for BS roughing the passer calls on sacks. Oh, I remember that. The season where we couldn't figure out what a sack was. Exactly. The Kirk Cousins game. It cost them a bunch of crucial games. Look at last year's Packers-Lions game, where Trey Flowers was hit with two, in the fourth quarter, two BS hands-to-the-face calls that lost the Lions the game but also any momentum they had moving into 2019 and the latter parts of the season. You have to understand, especially in football, one call can change a game, and in a 16-game schedule, just one call can change an entire team's season. We understand the NFL loves to smash its own records, but you know it's an issue when teams are setting penalty records on a game-by-game basis, but you don't need me to tell you that. How bad is it when the referees are getting more screen time than the players? (laughs) It takes longer for a referee to explain the reason for a penalty than an actual play to happen in the sport. Yeah, it's rough. And then when they can't figure it out, you have like six guys to come come together and decide it's not not a penalty. Then you're like, oh, what the hell was that all about? The The downtime in the broadcast are the commentators going to an expert who's a former referee to try and explain the play to the audience. Meanwhile, he has trouble explaining it too. And it's really not necessary. Has no one understood the KISS method when running this sport? I think the funniest part about all of this is how verbose the words, the language is within the rules, but at the same time, how vague the rules are about each individual scenario, like the cash rule and things like that. You mean like how we exactly talked about how the illegal contact, pass interference, and defensive holding are all the same penalty, despite the fact that there's three names for it? Yeah, there's so much language to each individual defensive penalty, yet they can't decide what's what, and when they do decide, it's like, okay, that obviously wasn't a call. As a Niners fan, I've seen Richard Sherman this year, who is probably the most physical corner of this modern day. But Sherman got called for and flagged for so many goddamn illegal contact defensive holding penalties, where in 2012 you'd be like, oh my god, he's the best cornerback in the league. Wow, look at look at the great coverage that he's he's playing, you know? So so things like that just really irk me, and I'm sure they irk you too. So here's the thing. The NFL currently employs 124 officials, and as of 2017. Only 24 of them were full-time. That's less than 20%. As of last year, they suspended their full-time officiating program. 
Well, what does that mean, Greg? Well, I'll tell you, dedicated listener. Firstly, let's let's make this clear. I do understand the NFL plays only about 20 to 21 weeks of the year, right? About 21 weeks. Give or take. Yeah. But you have to understand how much language, as we've already mentioned, is inserted into each rule. And if these people, who, by the way, some of them are high school principals, some of them are farmers, some of them are lawyers, if they're not committed full-time to the art of NFL refereeing, which is already an unmitigated disaster, well, you can kind of see how the product might suffer a little bit. And when the rules are as interpretive as the NFL actually boasts about on public broadcast, how can these part-timers be trusted to mandate these rules properly? Mr. Massive? You know it's a problem when the networks that are broadcasting the game, not the NFL, the networks that are broadcasting the game need to have a rule interpretation expert to explain to the audience what rule could be applied here and why some things are a catch and why a football move is a definable term, which it's not. Does nobody un- knows, Does nobody else understand the problem that we're having here where I need to explain to the viewer the basics of the game that we're watching? Which, by the way, is the biggest game in American sports. As my cohort has previously mentioned, the NFL is becoming a chore to watch. The lack of consistency in officiating is tearing the game apart from the inside. So we've talked a lot about changes in people, but we got to get back to rule changes here. And the NFL can learn a little something from its second foster child cousin, the XFL. Because the XFL's extra point attempts were legendary. They eliminated the extra point in favor of a three-option system. The offense either starts from the one-yard line for a one-point extra point, the five-yard line from a two-point extra point, and ten-yard line from a three-point extra point. No more do we have to sit through kickers being responsible for missing a 33-yard extra point and ruining everyone's day, especially for those who sports gamble. Field goals aren't fun unless they're dramatic, so let's keep them dramatic. Right, and for stupid millennials like us, I have the attention span of a freaking peanut. And I like to watch kicking as much as I like watching fat girls walk down the street. And another image that pains me horribly is sometimes the boring and utterly lifeless conclusion to a climactic game. That being the lifeless, dead, onside kick attempt. Oh, God. The NFL actually tried to change the rules prior to 2018 so that teams could no longer get that running start before the ball was kicked, making it even worse, and thus no longer giving any advantage to the kicking team. So that way there's no incentive to do it. Kicking teams were successful two, a whopping two out of 52 times in 2018. And it dropped down to two out of 32 times through 11 weeks in 2019. The onside kick has officially gone from a last gasp of desperation and excitement to a complete virtual formality. So basically, it's freaking useless as we sit here and talk about it. Some people, like my gracious co-host over here to my right, believe that the onside kick should be abolished. And while I don't believe in such a drastic measure, I definitely do believe that change is needed. I believe a massive improvement over the current system would be to have a group of offensive linemen up against one another prior to the kick being blocked, and each team gets one represented to go after the ball. 
Now, this is a little bit radical, but either way, there have been plenty of proposals out there to either abolish or adjust the onside kick, such as the 4th and 15. And as much as we'd love to talk about the 4th and 15 attempt replacing the onside kick, it's been shelved by the NFL. They put it in purgatory. They don't want it to happen because they're afraid of change. So let's talk about another experiment that we'd like to work on and change, and that's the kickoff. All right, like it or not, the NFL's had a big kickoff issue on their hands. Anyone remember, in recent memory, any notable kick returners since Devin Hester and Josh Cribbs? No. And that's because the NFL has blamed its concussion problem on kickoffs. It's obviously a challenge that they face, being that they've been sued time and time again by former players. So the NFL took measure against kickoffs. They moved the kicking team's starting point up five yards and moved the touchback starting point up five yards as well. So because most of the returners, they're stopped before the 25, kickoffs are now filled with touchbacks and useless return attempts, rendering the kickoffs worthless and even worse, boring. It's like they put a band-aid on a problem rather than just tearing it down and fixing it. To be very honest with you guys, this is the part of the game where I usually go, you know, take my piss break. Or, you know, if I'm there, I'm just sitting there wondering, I'd rather watch a beer commercial than actually watch the kickoff. <laughs> and that's bad. Like, we literally just went on a rant about how much we love beer commercials in the NFL. And yet, I'd rather watch a beer commercial than a kickoff. I'd rather watch the referees get more screen time on, at that point. Jesus Christ. <laughs> but anyways... Go back to your point. There, what was it? The second step cousin or retarded? The, the cousin? second cousin of the foster child of the NFL. Yes, the XFL. Their king. Number one, adopt what they did. They moved kickoffs back to the thirty. Okay, but keep the two sides of players only five yards apart. It essentially eliminates all the high speed collisions that take place during kickoffs because the players they're only allowed to move once the ball is kicked. Guys, kickoffs were super exciting in the XFL. And that's because the results were greater. Again, to quote my cohort, Mr. Massive, think about it. The better the return on the kickoff, the better the starting position for the offense. The better the starting position for the offense, the greater the likelihood of sustaining drives and scoring points. That is how you add points to a football game. Like anything, you start from the ground up. So wait, you're telling me that there's a better way to generate points than throwing arbitrary flags? Nah, I'm just messing with you. Kickoffs are awesome. Damn it. I love watching touchbacks and commercials and whistles being blown without anybody moving. Ha! Oh, and by the way, and most importantly, make us the goddamn commissioners. And as the first rule of commissioners of Eat My Sports, because we're not commissioners of the NFL, is to have a coffee break because, well, I'm already I'm parched. I'm tired of talking about the NFL and its nonsense. We're going to talk about something a lot more worse than that. And yes, there's something worse than that. The worst foods. Because here at Eat My Sports, while we do believe in a balanced breakfast and life, there's also some deal breakers. Everybody's got them. And there are some foods out there that are just god-awful. Yeah, and... and me knowing you for, for quite some time now, I know you have your, uh, your your bad moments with certain foods, but I want to talk about a really bad moment to, to really set the scene for everybody here. 
I want to talk about the story of the penis pickle. The penis pickle? The penis pickle. Jesus Christ. Okay. Well, I have a friend, okay? He picked me up one day. We went to the diner. Let's call him Eddie. <laughs> okay? <laughs> so Eddie picked me up uh, after a long shift at Daddy-O's Barbecue. Shout out to Daddy-O's Barbecue, by the way. The brisket's I, pretty good. I better get some free goddamn food, all right there, owner of Daddy-O's Barbecue. But nonetheless, okay, let's talk about the penis pickle. So on that fateful night, we went to the diner. We sat down. I looked at my wallet. And I go, hey, douche. All right? So, the, you know, the pickles and the coleslaw came by. For those that never went to a diner, you get pickles and coleslaw. I go, hey, douche. While we wait for our food, I will give you all the money in my wallet. All 80 bucks of it, by the way. All 80 bucks. If you eat this entire pickle like it is a penis. In one bite. He goes, all right, I could use the 80 bucks. Gets it down. Okay, he's munching on it. It's really gross. Honestly, I'm really repulsed at that point. I was ready to get out of my seat. But Why, he, just by him or by the, the thought of that happening? I, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> but... <laughs> But here's where it got truly gross, everyone. Okay? As soon as I was ready to give my friend the $80, he ralphed it back up. He threw it right back up on the table, the whole penis pickle, and lost his $80. And from that point on, he has never even eyed a pickle. Or a penis. Since that time. Is it because he can't see his own penis or he just doesn't like them? Hey, that's not nice. Yeah, I'm sorry. We're a family-friendly show to a degree. But here's the thing with that, guys. If you haven't learned anything, is that people will do anything for money. But here's the thing. Here's something I will never, ever do for money. Eat sauerkraut. (laughs) But sauerkraut's not that bad. No, it's disgusting. There's nothing appealing about it. Okay. Here in the New York metropolitan area, sauerkraut is a very very commonly used condiment, usually added on like hot dogs or some form of sandwich. But I gotta be honest with you, I don't understand the appeal. It's gross. It smells awful. It looks like paper drenched in water and then has this weird, it just, the smell and consistency of this stuff makes me want to gag. Not like the penis pickle because I have some self-respect, but the point is... <laughs> But the point is that you <laughs> you can't you cannot pay me money to be anywhere near this substance. It's gotten to the point in my life, and yes, I'm that petty. If I'm at a barbecue, and it's the summertime, we're gonna we're, we're probably gonna have this happen. If I'm at a barbecue and sauerkraut's being put on a hot dog, I will walk away. No, like <laughs> walk away and scream like a little girl. Like this has been the same way for a long time, and I remember the day that this happened. It was about ten years ago. My mother. You know, she's making a hot dog. It's a nice day. So throw some mustard, some ketchup on the dog, you know, if, if you're into that kind of thing. And then she put, breaks out the sauerkraut. And I just, I got like a huge whiff of it. It's like, it's like a foreign substance. You you feel it and you're like, I got to get the hell out of here. It's probably like the third time you screamed like a little girl today. Or that day. I mean, today, the other day, it doesn't really make a difference. The fact of the matter is that this, this condiment, this thing, this fake cabbage thrown on top of a hot dog is... It's disgusting. It's no, it's gross. It smells awful. Let me ask you this. No, no. We were talking about the other day, me and a couple of friends at, uh, at our friend Lou's house, we were talking about the worst things to be pickled. What do you think, in your opinion, would be the absolute worst thing to be pickled or pickle-flavored? I mean, I like pickles, so I don't really have a problem with pickles. I don't know what it has to do with sauerkraut. I guess they kind of go together. Maybe it's like a coleslaw or something. Well, but sauerkraut's pickled cabbage. Is it really? Yeah. That's what it is? Yeah, didn't Joey tell you that the other day? Uh, you assumed I paid attention. Because it was sauerkraut. 
Yeah, like, listen, guys, at the end of the day, if you ever want to get under Mr. Massive's skin, just bring some sauerkraut, and I'll probably leave the room. Hell, I might not even talk to you. <laughs> I, I don't even know what to tell you. That, that, that's how much of a deal-breaker this is. Is that how to get you off the podcast? I mean, if you really want, you could just ask me. <laughs> now, well, even though I am a huge girl when it comes to sauerkraut, I got to tell you, there's some other things I don't like, and here's a real one that I didn't tell you about. Go ahead. I don't like Nutella. I don't see the appeal. I don't. Boom! I don't hate it. But I and I respect it for some people, but I, I just don't get it. Hot take overrated. It's basically peanut butter peanut butter flavored mayo. Like peanut what? butter flavored mayo? Think about it. The consistency what? of it, you gotta spread it on stuff. It, it's it, it, it's really not that good. It's like it's, it's really overrated. Yeah, it is. And they put it on like pizzas and stuff. They try and make like a dessert. No, pizza. like if I wanted a chocolate flavored pizza, I just wouldn't order that because chocolate flavored pizza doesn't make logical sense. But enough about me and my picky tasting foods. Foz, do me a favor. Why don't you tell the world about some of the things that you hate? Okay. So this I did not tell you about. And this I know we were going over some notes. We were going, I know like. You know, we're very close, and, you know, we know, like, some of the stuff... We're we actually like. friends, by the way. We're not just, you know, podcast people. Okay. I don't know if you know, but I absolutely despise peas. Oh, no, you brought this up because they're tasteless. They're they're utterly tasteless, okay? Let, 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 me, let me paint a picture for you, okay? You're digging into a delicious Sicilian rice ball. Okay. Fantastic. Oh, phenomenal. There's there's meat in there, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of good stuff. It looks nice. But then there's these little green things in there that don't taste like anything. They just ruin the consistency. Those are called peas, people. Okay? They don't... Again, I, I cannot reiterate this enough. They add no value to any food. Oh, but Greg, they add color to things. Wonderful. You know what adds color to? Food dye. Do you want food dye in your food? No. That's what peas are, essentially. Green food dye and little balls. Okay? They add no nutritional value. No supplemental value. No taste whatsoever. Why are you putting peas in my food? Why are you whispering? My disdain for peas goes... Is... Transcends time and space. I can almost promise you that your... That your issue with peas does not transcend my issues with sauerkraut. But if you ever wanted to learn how to piss him off, make sure to send some peas over to eatmysports2020 at gmail.com. Let me ask you this. Do you like cucumbers? I don't mind them. Do you like cucumber, like, water, or do you like... If somebody handed you a plate of cucumbers... I'll probably eat it. You eat the cucumbers? Yeah, they're That's like... gross, They're bro. like pickles, bro. No, they're not like pickles. Actually, they are. Aren't they just aged pickles, or is it the other way around? I forget. Other way around. Either way, both of them are good, although I, will, I do prefer the pickle. Yeah. Oh, you know what's really bad? What? When you get a plate of GT, right? General Tso's. Yeah, I was gonna say, rice. for those out there, if you don't know what GT is, it's General Tso's chicken from your local Chinese food eatery. The peppers in the GT. No, I've no. never eaten the peppers. In well, the you know, GT. you know, you know what the funniest thing about that is? It's not the peppers that's the problem. It's the fact that you asked them to not be put in there, and they're still put in there. Yes. That, so specifically, like no peppers. Like that—that's the worst part about it. I like peppers, but if I ask you to not put something in my sandwich and/or rice, don't put it in my sandwich. There's no need. It makes no sense. I got one more thing for you. Go for it. Okay. And, and this is the bane of my existence, all right? The bane of my existence. If you go to the local supermarket, okay? Let's say you go to, like, your local shop, right? Wherever you want to go, you go to the, the refrigerated section. You're going to find a sour cream-based item, okay? I know what you're thinking. 
I really hate mayo, but it's not mayo. I don't even like. I don't have a disdain for mayo anymore. It's not my big thing. I'm surprised. I know you are. There's a sour cream. It's a a jar of sour cream with herring in it. With, you mean the fish? With fish in the sour cream. That is the most gross, disgusting, vile thing I've ever seen. And sometimes it's not refrigerated. I would, you know, I'm going to respect that because not only did I not know this existed, it sounds awful, but I think I got something worse for you. It's one thing that I did not tell you about either because, you know, we got to save our ammo for these segments. But one thing that I absolutely cannot stand, and for those in middle America that probably do this, I'm genuinely sorry. I really am. But please, do not do this ever again after you hear this. Do not. Buy pre-packaged cold cuts from your local supermarket. It is the absolute worst, disgraceful thing you could ever do to the animal that was slaughtered to eat that piece of your sandwich. You need to go to your local deli and get something fresh. If you're getting pre-packaged frozen bologna that's been there for three weeks and then put it on your sandwich, you might as well just not eat. You're doing your... Like, dude, you're doing a disservice to your local economy. You're doing a disservice to the animal that was slaughtered to eat it. And your body's not going to thank you either. So what are you doing? Don't eat prepackaged cold cuts. And if I may, for those that don't know how to order said cold cuts and would prefer the prepackaged, we're going to teach you to eat my sports. Like a good New Yorker, okay? Here's how it goes. You approach said counter. Okay? You you walk in with confidence. You got to move your hands, too. It's like a part of the process. All right? You got to... You gotta, uh, pointer finger and thumb together, the three other fingers outwards. Okay, you gotta say to your local deli man, Oh, hey, paisano, que sedice? I need a pound of ham sliced thin. Let me get a pound of ham, all right, a pound of turkey, a pound of mozzarella, all right, a pound of Swiss, and you know, all right, I'm not gonna let this go, a pound of that damn good American cheese. I deal with this cheese. All right, we're not gonna get back into it, okay? but a damn good pound of that American cheese. Oh! I'd rather get the mozzarella, but I like American cheese. The point is, you go to a deli. You do not get your cold cuts from a ShopRite, a Pathmark, a Walmart, whatever the big box supermarket is near you. Don't do it. And that concludes our first cup of coffee for the day. We hope you enjoyed it because, quite frankly, I mean, food is as important to this show as sports because without sports, there's no food. Or something like that. Either way. <laughs> That's not true. Shut up. <laughs> but we're going to move on anyways. We'll be right back with lunch. With a fake commercial break. And we have returned from our fake commercial break. We'd like to thank all of our non-existent sponsors. Except for Anchor. Except for Anchor for this wonderful episode. So for lunch last week, you had a full fat meal of stupid teams do stupid things as part of our first official segment where we ripped on Big Blue themselves. As a New York-based podcast, we felt it hit right at home. For this episode, we're going to do the inverse. We're going to celebrate the history of a New York sports team, a team that, unlike the Giants, they've adhered to their history, but they've constantly evolved with the times. They set the standard in sports. It takes great gall to go after success at all odds. And no team has ever successfully pursued great success with such mass consistency like the New York Yankees. So what you'll be enjoying at this point is an homage to the Yankees from not only a big fan, myself, 
and my perspective, but first, through the eyes of the enemy, a Red Sox fan's perspective. Enjoy. Growing up during the third Yankees dynasty was not a fun time for anyone who wasn't a Yankees fan. Me. Time and time they came out on top, they always seemed to outbid everyone, and it was really annoying. They were always one step ahead of my of the rival, my Red Sox. From Jose Contreras to Alex Rodriguez to Mark Stachera, the Yankees were always willing to outpay and outpace the Red Sox at every single corner. And if the Yankees could not defeat their opponents, they would buy them. Even when as far as stealing Johnny Damon, Jacoby Ellsbury, and even Wade Boggs. Bastards! The Red Sox came up short for 86 straight years. And it was often because the Yankees were just always willing to spend a little bit more or simply do a bit more. The most important rivalry in baseball history is represented by the 2003 ALCS, which in my opinion is the greatest back and forth series in baseball history. Because it goes deeper than just the games being played. The mystique and everlasting glory of the Yankees, in addition to being reminded your whole entire life of the 26 rings, God, the thought of it now just makes my blood boil. Ooh, 27. Shut up. (laughs) But here's the thing. The Yankees began to be bigger than life. They grew into a mythical creature, a true titan, the evil empire. And no matter how much anyone else thought that they'd compete, the Yankees were always ready to step on the competition, leave them lying like a dead animal, taking no prisoners with them. To say that every interaction felt like a David vs. Goliath situation is an understatement. Having my favorite pitcher, the great Pedro Martinez, call the Yankees his daddy on national television was pathetic, embarrassing, and a true low point for Sox fans. You know, it felt like a deep shadow creeping over my shoulder. It wouldn't go away. It's like the boogeyman living under your bed. It wasn't until the 2004 ALCS where the Red Sox were finally able to conquer their demons in what might be the greatest comeback in the history of sports. It took an historical comeback that allowed the Red Sox to achieve its sweet vengeance. And although the Red Sox went to break their infamous 86-year curse and finally win the World Series, as a Red Sox fan, I'm going to tell you that I don't remember the World Series as much as I remember that ALCS. You have to understand that the, the legacy of the Red Sox is built through the Yankees. The Red Sox accomplished something they hadn't done in almost a century, but beating the Yankees was bigger than that. It's one of the few situations in life where a sports drama defeats the drama of a movie or theatric or theater because it's real life, and people genuinely feel these types of emotions. And I can tell you this. The feeling of knowing that you're going up against the Yankees and the probability of losing was just gut-wrenching. That rivalry defined an era. It's what made me a baseball fan. That, to me, is what cements the Yankees as the premier American sports powerhouse. Damn Yankees. Why, thank you, surprisingly humble Red Sox fan. Shut up. The pinstripes have been symbolic of success in professional sports. Dating back to their first World Series championship in 1923, and lastly in 2009. And most of you know, because every goddamn Yankee fan, including myself, yells at every old lady in the street. 27 ring! But what does that really mean? Well, 
if you ask a random person on the street, who is the first baseball team that comes to mind? Do you think they're going to say Mr. Massive's Red Sox? The Mets? The Dodgers? Yeah, I know that was a shot fire. <laughs> you can keep that in there. Oh, I'm already recording, so of course I'm going to keep it in there. But no. The Yankees. The Yankees are the first team they're going to think of. If you ask said random, innocent, and potentially now harassed bystander, who has the most championships in sports? They'll likely say the Yankees. If this now completely harassed person has not pepper sprayed you or have ran for their lives. How'd you know I had pepper spray on me? Interesting. Because you scream like a girl when sauerkraut's around, so you have it on you on purpose. All right. All right then, Mr. Pease. So, so listen, if you ask this person if they know any baseball players, they'll likely say Babe Ruth, A-Rod, Jeter, Joe DiMaggio, Yogi Berra, or Mickey Mantle. Those are probably going to be one of their first answers. Why? The Bronx Bombers might just be a sports team like any other. But they're bigger than a sport of baseball. Or even sports in general. They symbolize what America has become over the 20th century. An empire. A world power. Internationally loved. And internationally hated. Yankee fandom scales on a global level. They're the embodiment of consistency, success, but more importantly, money, wealth, and power. Something virtually everyone desires. They symbolize our hopes and dreams. And whether you know it or not, and whether you like it or not. I don't. We know you don't, Mr. Mess. <laughs> but save your shtick. Because baseball might be dead without its lovable villains. And because of their revolving success, they forced other teams like your Red Sox to step up their game and be revolutionary rather than follow suit. As they do have four rings in the past 15 years, that's a big deal and you know it. Let's not downplay it. The Red Sox are a good I, team now. Uh, listen, I cannot deny the facts. But that is what competition does. And that's what we've discussed. But it only took the Red Sox 86 years when, to win the title. The dominance of the Yankees. My favorite team has only gone two decades without winning a World Series. And yes, this past decade was won, but not due, however, to futility. Simply rather the evolution of other ball clubs. Don't mistake the Yankees' lack of successes and competence. They made four ALCS appearances and seven playoff appearances overall. The only other team to do that was the Dodgers. And good luck looking back at their past 40 years of baseball beyond that. So, when I ask you this, have the Yankees really been bad this past decade? No. They just have simply a World Series or bust mindset every single year. And that's why they're wildly successful. I mean, it also helps being the richest team in America and, you know, also being in New York. Kind of helps a little bit. Just a tad. <laughs> But learning from the success of previous World Series winners this recent decade, the Yankees never really truly shot away from their traditional go-out-and-sign-everyone strategy, but rather they've started to lean in favor of a more homegrown style, building the core from within, like guys like Aaron Judge, Gleyber Torres, Luis Severino, Gary Sanchez. 
they've also beefed up their bullpen a lot. You know, to an extent we've never likely seen in baseball, learning from other teams that have won the World Series. It also doesn't really hurt they acquired Garrett Cole. I'm sure he'll do them. You know, eh, he'll do all right. Yeah, pretty good. All in all, folks, the Bronx has, for the most part, never stopped burning. And as a spoiled Yankee fan, I'm not nearly satisfied with the offseason that they've already had. Even though they just signed the biggest free agent signing ever in Garrett Cole. That is the power of Bronx baseball. Sign a historic free agent that results in a so-so offseason. Hey, things could be worse. Could be a Met fan, right? So I didn't know that my lunch was going to consist of a nice big piece of humble pie, but... But as we move forward to our afternoon munchies segment, because let's be honest, we're fat, we're American, we like to eat multiple times a day. So we're going to talk about a couple more things that really hit home for us. I love baseball. If you couldn't tell from this segment, we love baseball. I mean, of all time, really. But here's the thing. You know what's really important to baseball and what's really shaped modern baseball? I'm not even kidding. Some of you out there that, once again, eat their sports with their dentures might not agree with me, but... Video games. My favorite sports video game of all time, without hesitation, is MVP Baseball 2005. Now, some of you may not have played this game. Some of you don't even play video games. But you need to understand why this game is important. It was the game that taught me about players that weren't in conventional media at the time. It was fantasy sports to me before fantasy sports even existed because not only was it a great video game, not only did it teach me about the strategy of baseball, but it taught me about guys that weren't even in the league yet, and it taught me how to trade people as commodities rather than players. When you talk about modern fantasy baseball, people are really into every single stat Every single rating. How strong is this man's arm? Hello. Hi. This guy over here, by the way. Oh, on my last three leaves. Thank you. Yeah, him and his uh, MLB The Show. But I'm rearing off the straight line. What I'm getting at is that this video game is utterly fantastic. It's probably the best video game ever for me as a baseball fan. And it still holds up true 15 years later with my most recent playthrough as of a week ago. But that's not the only sports game that makes sense. Greg, I want you to tell me about what your favorite sports video game is and why. Oh, will do. Why, thank you. Let's take the time to examine how crappy the Madden franchise is. Jesus Christ. It's a completely unmitigated mess. For those of you that, that play Madden, oh, we love Madden. You know, ultimate team and stuff. I don't really care. I'm going to put it this way. The game has been an unmitigated mess since 2008. Okay. Actually, 2008 was the, the, the last great rendition, 2009. The Vince, the Vince Young Madden, right? The Vince Young Madden the and the Vince Brett Favre Young. Madden were the two last great renditions of Madden. They completely took away all of the great modes aside from franchise mode, but they stripped franchise mode bare. I know I, I kind of wanted to get into a little backstory, but I don't want to get into backstory. Madden, to me, really devolved. Okay, they... They've been featuring the Pro Bowl as like some big, you know, uh, exponential growth in terms of their gameplay. Hey, we got the Pro Bowl in franchise mode and whatnot. It's it's a complete waste of time. It's it's nonsense. They've really devolved. They they can't get the offensive line right. 
it's a complete mess. So what you're telling me is that Madden is actually an accurate representation of the NFL right now. No, it's it's it can't even be an accurate <laughs> representation. It's worse. No, if you watch offensive line play in Madden, it's it's a complete mess. I mean, nobody can get it right. It's just like guys with like little T-Rex arms just doing nothing. It's like it's so automated. A game I want to talk about, and I'll stop rambling about Madden. It's ESPN NFL 2K5, mm. which shaped my fandom. Other than my father, it shaped my fandom of football. Okay, I really engaged my love of football. I just want to start with the jargon. Okay, now it's it's special terms used for you know specifically football. There was an entire section in NFL 2K5 dedicated to just learning the jargon. I know I showed you a video about this. Learning the plays, learning the, the play calling. They literally teach you the ins and outs of football. You tell me in the past 12 years where Madden's had anything like that. So for those out there that don't understand where we're getting at, the game did a better job of teaching you about football than the actual organized league that we have that wa that makes us watch football. It takes football, and I don't want to say dumbs it down because it's not a dumb thing, but it, it gives you the ability to understand what it is in layman's terms. For a person that doesn't really watch or play football video games. So they always say, and they, I mean the council of that, they always say that the game is one in the trenches. That's where Madden's lost, in the trenches. And that's where NFL 2K5 is, in the trenches and the running game. It has evolved beyond what Madden can even comprehend. It's so fluent. The offensive line actually engages based on passes and runs. It doesn't do the same thing every time. I, I know I'm kind of like, you know, all over the place with this. But I really... But that's, go the, on. but that's the nature of your cup of coffee, man. I know. That's Which, what it is. Go online and watch a video about 2K5. You know, in hindsight and retrospect, like, you look back at 2K5, it was so fluent for its time. You had Chris Berman doing the halftime show. You had Chris Berman doing the pregame. You could interact with celebrities like Carmen Electra and Trey Wingo and uh, Funkmaster Flex and stuff. It was a really revolutionary game for its time. The, the mid-2000s era for sports video games was at its peak. And this is before the time of exclusivity deals, where yeah. Madden was the only football game that can have Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, your identifiable characters. This was the time where it was a free-for-all in the sports world, and it allowed us to get quality content from multiple publishers. These days, look, I'm not going to talk about MLB The Show because I'm, I haven't really played the game. And I know it has a huge following. I know it's really good to a lot of people, but it's just not for me. But it's the only MLB game that is substance enough to really get out there to a wide audience. The same thing happens to Madden. You got to understand that 15 years ago, when I was a little youngin who didn't have a job and couldn't buy his own games, I only had what was available to me. ESPN NFL 2K5 and MVP 2005 were two really good games for their time, and they taught us more about the game than the mo the games of this time. Truly timeless games. They're fantastic. You I still have my PS2 now and we'll play. Right, you can go back on PS2 and honestly you'll probably have a more enjoyable experience playing those games than than the modern versions. And I want to talk about another game that, that really set my love for sports. And that's NHL 94. Ah. NHL 94. My father, my father used to be a huge sports geek. Uh, he, he tailed off now. He's, he's, he's a true businessman now, but... He sat me down for as long as I could sit. He sat me down with a controller, completely unplugged, by the way. Fun fact, he used to, like, two years old, he would sit me down, give me a controller to play with him, but it would be unplugged. That's a very your dad thing to do. Yeah, it is. 
Definitely. Yeah, he's such a sleazeball. <laughs> Sorry, hey, Dad. Hey, listen, you said it. Sorry, Dad. I, you know I love you. But um, <laughs> it really shapes my love for hockey as well and, and overall sports. And NHL 94 is a revolutionary game. IGN has consistently ranked it amongst one of the top 100 games of all time. Not just sports games, of all time. And as bare as it was, it was so fluent for its time on Sega Genesis, I have to add NHL 94. But here's the thing why, and at the core of what it is, video games are not meant to be simulations of the sport. And I and let me I'm gonna leave you with this final Fast. food this final food for thought. If you're looking to play a simulation of a game, you should just go outside and play the game. If you're looking for a good fun time, then you go play a video game. And that's the problem with modern sports games. It's not so much that the games aren't quality. They're missing the essence of what makes them fun. Video games are meant to be fun. They're competitive, just like main sports too, but there's something different about them. I'm going to leave you with this. Hockey is probably the least popular sport in this country, but the most fun sports games by the American populace is NHL. Think about that for a second. Maybe yes, I, I mean, I, I use my, my slogan. I guess we'll call it that now. But the two most unpopular sports in this country, soccer and hockey, both international sports, are the most fun sports video games. Where's where, What happened to us? I'm not sure. I think it has a lot to do with microtransactions, too. Oh, and we're, we're going to close the segment out with microtransactions. Get rid of them. They suck. Yeah, just get rid of them. Honestly, I know that they make you money and whatnot. Oh, there's my Ratchet and Clank game, by the way. I'm going to take that back. Uh, <laughs> you, can, you can have it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, shout out to Ratchet and Clank, by the way. Woo! Uh, but that's besides the point. Microtransactions have really devolved the game as well because I, I think a lot of video game developers have really taken the time to develop the idea consciously that they don't need to work on the game from year to year. They can sort of Phase in the same idea in terms of advertising. Dynamic stick handling. Um, new ball movements. Ultimate team. Diamond Dynasty. New ultimate team. You know, rather than actually working on the games and, and making them physically feel better. And they don't from year to year. It's, it's, it's completely inconsistent. And, and I can testify that to a lot of games, especially 2K. 2K is another one. where there's more NBA? Of, yeah, there's more of a community playing 2K19 than 2K20. And that's a sad fact. Because I do that, and my friends do that, and and that's and they own 2K20, and they're like, no, we won't play 2K20, you know? Games are about quality. They're not about profitability. I understand that companies are there to make money, but if you're going to release a low-grade product and then just entice people with special, special editions of crap, and then, you know, ask for more money for microtransactions, what are you really doing? You're not, you're not doing a service to your customers or anybody about that. I'm going to leave you with that. I really got, I really want you guys to think about sports video games because of how great they are, but they're also really volatile. But my stomach is rumbling. I don't want to throw up, and that's how I'm going to feel if I continue. So we'll be right back for dinner. Thank you very much. What flavors of White Claw do you have? I got cherry, ruby, grapefruit, raspberry, and that's it. We're out of line. I want blue. Give me blue. There is no blue. What do you mean there's no blue White Claw? What are you saying? What are you, give me the blue white claw. Why don't they have a blue? All right. Blue flavor is the best of everything. Listen, Italian, random Italian guy at ShopRite, just take your fucking black cherry and like it. Fair enough. We'll be back with dinner. 
And welcome back. If you're not full from the last meal, we got one more for you because as we know, Americans are obese if you listen to our last episode. But for our final segment, which again, we're talking about change and evolution, we're going to gauge a topic that people have been talking about since the French Revolution in 500 BC. The universal DH. With the owner's proposition of a universal DH in the 2020 MLB season, we may see the end of an era. But let's be true to ourselves. Baseball's been a lost cause this year. In fact, let's look towards the future of baseball. At the core of this conversation, we do agree that both sides of the argument have the best interest of baseball at heart. And that's what makes this topic so controversial, yet so special at the same time. The owners try to implement this as part of their 2020 agreement. But let's be honest, the owners have been working on this for a very long time. All right there, Mr. Massive Douche. Let's examine whoa, both sides whoa, of the whoa, argument. Massive Douche, we're a family-friendly <laughs> show here. <laughs> Not so family-friendly after your cursing incident, all right, during that White Claw shit. I told you you can edit it out. You chose not to. That's true. So let's talk about the NL side of things. Those against the idea of a universal DH, they claim that it keeps the tradition going. That the difference between the AL and the NL baseball keeps the game pure, special, unique. You mean all the words that we use to describe kids that don't actually do anything in their elementary school years? Or kids with autism. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) What NL loyalists do claim, though, okay, is that the difference in styles makes the World Series and interleague play more special and more exciting. Got anything else for me? Truth be told, and I talk to a lot of people about baseball, I really haven't heard anything else from NL Loyalists. The conservative side of the argument, so to speak. But then again, the theme of this episode is change and evolution. And a big organic change has been in the pecking order of American sports, where baseball has become the third most popular sport in a land where LeBron and Brady rule the roost. Baseball has taken a nosedive in attendance. And if you haven't noticed, Rob Manfred, the commissioner, has taken artificial measures to change the game. Juiced balls, anyone? And no perverts. Juiced balls does not mean what you think. What did the juiced balls create? Ding, ding, more home runs. More offense, like you previously mentioned, Mr. Massive. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Continuity. More home runs equals more offense, and more offense equals more fans in attendance. But wait, didn't baseball try this once before already? Oh, you mean the steroid era? The most booming era ever in baseball history? And the decade following? Yeah, I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah, no, not at all. It wasn't the 50s, it wasn't the 70s. It was the steroid era. McGuire and Sosa had the epic home run chase in 98. Barry Bonds hit 73 home runs in 2001. Offense creates star power, people. Look at Patrick Mahomes. Look at Tom Brady. Look at Peyton Manning. Look at Derek Jeter. Look at A-Rod. Look at Barry Bonds. You can go through it all. The biggest stars play the best offense. Sorry, everybody. At the end of the day, and I know this is going to hurt, I'm sure most people would rather watch Aaron Judge hit three home runs than watch Jacob DeGrom throw a complete game shutout. But Greg, what about the pitchers? Let me ask you a question. 
what's going to add more to the game? An impact bat in the middle of the lineup or a pitcher who might execute a bunt correctly if they're feeling courageous that day, but at the end of the day, they're a near-automatic out in the middle of the lineup. Is that really considered strategy? No, it's a waste of time. The strategy argument is arbitrary and can be argued for every move change in the game. For the long-term success and, truthfully, the survival of baseball, baseball needs the universal DH. It's not a matter of question anymore. The question is when, not if. And let's face the facts, Mr. Massive. Pitching, or rather pitchers hitting, is pure futility. Folks, let me ask you a question. How many home runs were hit by pitchers in 2019? If you guessed 19, like millions of other Americans, you are correct. Thank you, Google. Thank you, Google. To give you some perspective, the Twins had 10 players last year with 20 home runs. They won 100 games, albeit in a weak division, but you get my point. The Yankees had one less home run and had 103 wins. I know this is going to hurt, and I hate to go back to it. I'm sorry, I do like them. But who do you think will be more exciting to watch? The Twins or the Mets? Don't lie to the audience, you don't like the Mets. <laughs> I do like the Mets, I enjoy them. But ultimately, if baseball's attendance continues to drop, what's going to be next for everyone? Metal bats? The inevitability approaches like the IRS collecting your tax debt, and thus... The juiced ball era shall further on. Look, we understand. Baseball's traditional parity between the American and the National League gives it a special charm to it. And I still enjoy it to this day. But that is all it offers at the end of the day. In terms of entertainment value and keeping the attention of the audience, American League Baseball reigns supreme. While some of most stories, players, Hall of Famers in baseball history are at the designated hitter position, David Ortiz, Edgar Martinez. Let's stop lying to ourselves. One could argue that perhaps having a DH is a cop-out for de defensive ineptitude. And that could very well be true. But ultimately, pitchers never excelled at defense anyway. On top of that, the DH extends the careers of players and shows significant contribution to their respective teams. Much more so than any pitcher could, given the fact that their primary job is, well, you know, pitching in a league that's trying to have more offense. So let me put it to you this way. I'll take Nelson Cruz over Bartolo Colon every single time. Finally, I would like to argue that the DH, in fact, is more strategic and allows more versatility in roster construction. Only a select few teams have a permanent player occupying the DH these days. The Red Sox are most known for that with David Ortiz and J.D. Martinez. But for the most part, designated hitters often utilize these days in order to provide positional versatility. It lets you rest guys. Think about it. The MLB is a 162-game season. That has a lot of wear and tear on your body. These guys are going to get hurt. Allowing players to not play the field consistently allows them to recover quicker and ultimately allows you to be a healthier team. And a healthier team is a better team. And what does a better team do? It scores more runs. It's not crazy. It's not rocket science. So I'm going to leave you with this, National League Loyalist. You can take your strategy argument and shove it. 
And that concludes episode two of Eat My Sports, and we hope you enjoyed the show. We talked a lot about change in sports today, but the changes extend much further than just sports. Changes exist within each and every one of us, and it's something that scares a lot of us. While evolution is considered the pinnacle of life, and it's everything that we strive for. However, we can't embrace evolution without embracing change. So if you seek to be the best version of yourself, you must accept the changes that come along with it. We may talk as if change is easy, but change only comes from within. It is up to you, and only you, to evolve and to adapt. To quote Jordan Belfort, the beauty is in the struggle. And no matter if you've seen the highest of highs, or the lowest of lows. There's always room for growth. As we've grown and evolved, individually and as a team, we understand that we're building something special here at Eat My Sport. So enjoy the ride. Thank you all, and stay hungry.